What's new, listeners? I'm Andre Howell, the host of Two Cents Critic. If you're in the mood for reviews of books, movies, and TV shows, then join in. This week, I'll be reviewing The Mysterious Benedict Society, the Disney Plus, uh, the Disney Plus series that just, that, that just wrapped up. It spans eight episodes. It aired, it aired on June 25th with two episodes, and then the rest of the episodes aired weekly until August 13th. And so, so this is so this is based on the on the first book in the Shortest Book series by Trenton Lee Stewart. And I actually, I actually read the first book last year just to pre- pre- prepare myself for the show because I knew the show was going to come out on Disney Plus. And I re- and I very much enjoyed the book. It very it has a, it has a quirky tone, and there are lots of puzzles and tests in the book. And I, rec- and I recommend reading it if you're into stuff like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory or Escape from Mr. Lemoncello's Library. And so, 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 the, so the premise of Mysterious Benedict Society is that there's this atmosphere of anxiety that's just lo- looming over the whole world and it's spreading through the news and everyone and everyone is all nervous about you know what's gonna co- what's gonna come next in the future. And there's a there's a phrase that everyone says a lot in the show, is no no is nobody's at the wheel, uh, you know you know like just no no one's no one's in control of what's going on. Like things are you know just spiraling, and and and, and so you have so you have Mr. Mr. Benedict, he's like this eccentric guy, and he's played by Tony Hale. And he, he, and so he's trying to get to the bottom of his mystery and figure out what's going on behind the emergency. And in order to combat this problem, he ends up going on this quest to recruit kids who can help him out. And he, and, and in this quest, he ends up finding ki- he ends up finding four kids. And it's and it's very much like a Harry Potter, you know. A wrinkle in time, sort of thing, you know, kids saving, kids saving the world, and overall, overall, I really enjoyed this show. It's something you know, it's something f- fresh to watch, and it's and it's really funny and smart, and I think it, I honestly think it's probably one of one of the best things you can watch on Disney Plus right now. I just think you know, you know, t- you know, typically when you watch just kind of you know family entertainment, you you expect it to kind of, you know, dumb itself down a little or try to talk down to the audience, You're not expecting that much out of it. But I found the writing here to be very to be quite smart. And I think it also it stays faithful to the to the to the offbeat tone of its source material of the, the first book in the series. And I definitely and and I definitely hope this will get renewed for a second season just because there are I think there are to- there are a total of four books in the book series, and there could definitely be more seasons that cover the rest of the books as well. And uh, if you and if you watch the show, you you realize right away that there's a there's a there's a Wes Anderson esque feeling about the show, just the way like just with the, with the visuals, kind of like with the the clothing, or the even with the cars, the buildings, just the way that everything looks everything looks like. It's a blend of, mo- of multiple p- time periods, 
kind of like maybe the 50s, 60s, 70s, just an amalgamation of all of these different time periods, which is something you see in a lot of uh, Wes Anderson's work, or even with a pastel color palette. And again, even just with, even just with that, just with the unabashedly quirky tone of it all. A lot, it, it, feels very, it feels very much like a Wes Anderson sort of thing. As for the, as for the cast, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the cast a lot. I think that it's definitely, you know, it, ca- it, can, be, it can be difficult to, to censor a, sh- a show or a movie around shadowed actors. You know, sometimes you can run into problems with that. And I think for the most part, the kids, the kids do a good part on the show here. Uh, yeah, you have Mystic Intro playing uh, Rainy Muldoon. She was drawn leader of the eponymous society. Seth Carr, who was young Killmonger in Black Panther, plays George Sticky Washington, the quiz show champion. And I would say the most anxiety-ridden out of all of the kids in the, the group. And then Kate Weatherall. Uh, you have Kate Weatherall. She's like a t- she's like this plucky a plucky girl who always carries a bucket with with her, and she and she always has like these emergency supplies in this bucket. And she's played by Emmy de Oliveira. And then Mara Kessler plays Constance Contreo, and she might be out of all of the kids, she might be my favorite. Her, her Constance and Kate. So probably definitely my favorite, my two favorite ki- my two favorite kids out of the group. Constance is just so, so just so lovably sarcastic, and just drops all of these quippy little lines throughout the show. I just you know just so stubborn and sarcastic, and I, I, I really love her. And I think that kid who plays Rainy, kid who plays Rainy, I think that maybe he takes a bit of time to to, to settle down into the role. But overall, I think he does, he does a good job in the role. And I actually, I, I heard when I was doing some research for the show, I heard people complain about Mother Kessler. She plays Constance. Uh, people complain about her, her Russian accent, that you could kind of hear it in the show. And it was making it hard to hear, to understand her, her, her lines. But personally, I thought it was okay. I could understand her. So, and I do, I do have subtitles on. So that probably does help with understanding the dialogue. And there were maybe one or two specific moments where I was like, oh, I can definitely hear the Russian accent coming through now. But otherwise, I thought it was okay. And I also, I, I, saw, I saw also there was some controversy about the depiction of Kate Weatherall. That uh, the, the, the actor who played her was too, kind of like, too harsh, too blunt in the portrayal. But personally, I thought I thought it was okay. I thought she, I thought she did a good job of bringing out the the pluckiness of the character. And then we have the adults in the show. So there's, there's Mr. Benedict. He is played by Tony Hale, who you may know from Veep and Arrested, Arrested Development. He's also the, the voice of Forky in Toy Story Four, and he'll also be in the upcoming drama Nine Days and uh, the Clifford the Big Red Dog movie. And I really, I really enjoyed him in, in this show because without, without getting too deep into spoilers of what, hap- of what happens, he ends, up, you know, he ends up actually playing more than one role, another role besides Mr. Benedict. And just a- as, as Mr. Benedict, I think he 
that he definitely brings out the eccentricity of the character, kind of like the, the messiness of him. But at the same time, it's not just it's not just this this energy, this exaggerated energy that fills the room. Instead, the the messiness of Mr. Benedict is more subdued, a little more quiet than I would have expected. And honestly, before the show, I wouldn't I I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought of Tony Hale as being a suitable pick for Mr. Benedict because because when I when I read the book. I pic- I pictured Mr. Benedict as being a mix between Willy Wonka and Albert Einstein, and I think when you look at Tony Hale, he just he just doesn't give off that kind of air. And I don't and yeah, I don't I don't think that's what the show I don't think the, the show tries to aim for that sort of de- sort of de- depiction here. It does go for a bit of a different direction, but I ended up I I, I ended up liking it though. And then as for the other role, again, I, I, I can't say too much about the other about what other role Mr. Uh, Tony Hale plays, but it definitely it is interesting. I would say it's interesting how he chooses to portray that, and I think it 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 gives it gives him a good opportunity to to display his range, his acting range, on the show. So I, I, I definitely appreciate him being on the Mysterious Benedict Society. And then you also you also have Kristen Shaw, who plays number two. She's one of the assistants for Mr. Benedict, and it's fun, it's funny. I didn't realize this until recently, but I'm pretty sure she's called number two because she's usually always wearing uh, just kind of like red yellow attire, and it, it and it makes and it makes it look like a number two pencil. And you know, and then there's Rhonda, who another assistant who is played by. Mama, Mama Ya Buafo. and then you have Milligan, who is played by Ryan Hurst, and if he looks familiar in the show, you may recognize him as Opie from the TV show Sons of Anarchy, he was, and he was also on The Walking Dead, Fear of the Walking Dead, and Bosch. Just to go back for a second to Kristen Schaal, and she, has, she actually has a, a, lot, a lot of credits herself to her name, and it really was amazing to look up to look her up because she has all of these voice credits. Like she's on, you know, Bob's Burgers. She's on the Disney TV show uh, Gravity Falls, which is actually on, on my watch list because uh, the directors of the Mitchell vs. the Machines came over from Gravity Falls. So I'm planning to, I'm planning to watch that soon because the two, the movie and the TV show, I've heard they have a, a similar brand of comedy. So I'm definitely gonna watch Gravity Falls in the future, and then Kristen Charles was also on BoJack Horseman, and she was in uh, Bill and Ted Face Music, and she's also on Shady Rock, which I found out thanks to my mom because she's a huge Shady Rock fan, and I was talking to her about the Mysterious Benedict Society, and she was like, "Hey, that's ha- that's Hazel what's her name," and I was like, "Who?" and she proceeded to. Show me this this compilation video of uh, of Kristen Shaw's character on Shady Rock, which is, it was it was pretty funny. Yeah, I, I think generally Kristen Shaw definitely she she, a, a, she she brings a lot of energy to her roles. Although I, I think on the Mysterious Benedict Society she's a bit again kind of like Tony Hale, she's a, she's a bit more a bit more subdued than than I would have expected in this specific performance. But yeah, I enjoyed it here, and 
and and also I did just I did I did just want to say that in my research I also found out that she was the voice of Victoria Best on World Goal, which I was shocked to find out. I mean I don't know if there are any you know World Goal fans out there who are listening to this, but I you know I was a big World Goal fan uh, back in my day, and it's just funny to keep doing research on that show because that had a surprisingly notable cast. I mean you had. You know, Pat Northwalt. He was he was a voice of one of the villains on the show. Uh, Fred Stoller from Everybody Loves Raymond and you know Seinfeld. He was a voice of one of the villains. Specifically, he was a voice of Shuck, the evil sandwich-making guy. Who, if, if, for the, for those of you who don't who haven't seen World Goal, Shuck is like this guy who loves sandwiches. That's his whole theme. Is his whole supervillain theme, and he has a sandwich for a head, and not just like a, a sandwich costume. His head is his head is biologically a sandwich, and he has lettuce hair. Yeah, just let that settle over you for a moment. And oh yeah, and and, and Gray Delizo Griffin. She's the voice of one of the villains on the show, and she was also the voice of Princess Azula. On Avatar: The Last Airbender, yeah, that, and, uh, and then Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants, he was a voice of Doctor Two Brains, um, another villain on the show, and again Doctor Two Brains, another 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 weird villain who has like this mouse brain attached to his head. Again, like Doctor Two Brains, like the evil sandwich making guy. You know, back in my day when I first watched the show, the the weirdness of these villains didn't really hit me until later on in life. Until I, until I was like, wait, it's weird that this guy has a sandwich for a head. Something else that I think is valuable about the show is that it has this whole theme of you know it has this whole theme of the of the emergency again of the anxiety that's just hanging over everyone because they can't because they don't, they don't know what to expect. It feels like it feels like things are just going mad all over all over the world for some inexplicable reason. And that's unfortunately quite relatable because, you know, that's what's happening in our own world today. It's been happening, you know, for over a year, year and a half, for a long, long time. And I Looking back on the past couple months, I feel like when the show, like maybe maybe before the show started, back in June, I was thinking to myself, okay, you know, even though we are still in the middle of a pandemic, it seems like things, you know, will probably get better. But now, at the end of the show, now I'm just looking at all of the events that are happening, and at the COVID, you know, Delta variant and the Lambda variant, and I'm just like... Uh, we're kind of going back to the same spot we were last year, last summer of 2020. And it's definitely quite anxiety-inducing. And I just think it was, it was, it was nice to kind of w- watch this show and be able to identify, identify with the main characters and, and the situation they're in. And, and the emergency isn't a new plot point for the show. It was it did also happen in the book as well, and it's just fascinating that you know something like this isn't isn't a book that was published you know back in two thousand seven, and yet it continue it continues to be timely, even just you know fifteen years later.
and yeah, it's just I, you know, it's just uh, you know, lo looking at the world around us, and it's like you know, I I want pandemic to end. I want things to be able to go back to normal. And even just you know, watching the show, it's nice. It's nice to be able to watch some mysterious Benedict Society, and just be able to stream other to stream other things because you know, at the moment, I personally don't feel safe going back to theaters. You know, I, I know that I know that other people are going to theaters. You know, and that's okay with you. You know, if you if you want to go to theaters, and you as long as you're wearing masks and you're vaxxed, that's okay. You know, that's your choice. But personally, I'm not comfortable enough to, to do that. And it's sad because there are plenty of movies that I would like to see in the theaters. I haven't gone to the theater to see a movie since Frozen Two, back in the back at the end of twenty twenty nineteen. And I was just like at the schedule, and there are movies I love to see in theaters, like you know Free Guy or Reminiscence or the Dune reboot. But I just again I just don't feel safe going to theaters to see them, and I mean. Yeah, just you know, people need people need to get vaxxed and you know wear mask wear masks, you know just. But and anyways, so getting back to the show, yeah. So I I really I really do love it, and I think my my wind up score for this is going to be ninety out of a hundred. Again, I just I really I really do love this, even though even though again, I do think that there are drop parts of the of the show that aren't totally faithful to the to, to the source material. And I and most of the most of the changes I'm okay with. Some of the some of the changes I even think were necessary. But there were a few changes where I'm like, and eh, this does take away a bit from the from the source material. But overall I really did love this. It's it's fresh, original, smart. Again, like I said before, one of the best things I think I think you can watch on Disney Plus right now. And so yeah, 90 out of 100. Alright, so those are my general thoughts on the Mysterious Benedict Society. And if you haven't seen the show yet, go watch it now, because I'm getting into spoilers now. I'll be covering the highlights for each of the 8 episodes. I won't be doing a that much of a deep dive into what happens in each episode, just because that would take hours and hours to cover. But I'll be, do but I'll be, I'll be covering the highlights. And just, you know, what I like and didn't like overall. So, the first episode is A Bunch of Smart Orphans. And this is directed by James Bobin, who also directed the 2011 Muppets movie with Amy Adams and Jason Stegall. And he also directed Muppets Most Wanted, Alice Through the Looking Glass, and Dora and the Lost City of Gold. So, uh, quite, a, quite a filmography here. And I do think that definitely makes him an appropriate director for... For this, for this episode in the show. And the episode is also written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, who are also the co-creators of the show. And co coincidentally, they were, they, were, they were also the co-writers of The Invitation and Eon Flux, both of which were directed by Karen Kusa uh, Kusama. And she was actually the, direct the director of one of the episodes in the show. And she's married to Phil Hay as well. So this episode, A Bunch of Smart Orphans, uh, I think it's definitely my favorite episode out of all of the episodes in the show, just because it does a great job of laying everything out for for the rest of the series. 
and it, you know, it has all the, the puzzles and the tests in it, and I think it does a good job at introducing the four, the four main characters, the four main kids in the show, and yeah, it definitely gives a strong start to the Mysterious Benedict Society. And, I, and, there, are a lot, and there are a lot of uh, great little moments in here. Like, I, lo- I love when when Rainey is reading his book at the orphanage, and, and the other kids are teasing him about it, and, he's, and he says that it's enjoyable, and they taunt him for using the word enjoyable. And he's like, enjoyable isn't even that big of a word. <laughs> Which is funny, I feel like I can identify with that because I feel like enjoyable is an adjective that I use a lot when I, whenever I'm talking about stuff. Like, oh, you know, I found this movie enjoyable. So I can definitely relate to that. And they are, and they are, and they are also, another, another detail they keep in show is how, Rainey, is how Rainey has learned to speak Tamil, which is an, an Indian dialect. And he, le- he learned to speak that. Uh, and that's in the book as well. So I like how they, I like how they keep that in the show. And I was just curious as as to why Chantilly Stewart, the the author of the book, I wonder why he showed that specific language for Rainey to learn. And I also like the dynamic they set up between Rainey and Miss Paramel, the head of the orphanage. And so, and a change they did make from the book to the show is that in the book. In the book, when you know they have advertisements for the tests, Origi- originally, Mr. Benedict only put only only promised special opportunities in the advertisement, and so it and it ends up making Miss Paramel seem negligent to just you know, send off Rainy without really knowing what the ad what the ad is for. Whereas here in the show, the ad promises that you. Promises a scholarship to the Boatwright Academy, and so I think that was a, that was definitely a necessary change they had to make. And, and again, I, I like I loved all of the all of the tests they have here, like with like with the quiz when they're, when they're taking the quiz, and Rainy ends up realizing that he that he has to go through all of the questions, and then and then look get to go through all the questions and then answer them like he has to take the info take the information from one question and use that to answer an earlier question and then just and then just keep hopping back and forth between the questions until the whole quiz is finished. I really enjoyed that because again that, that was taken straight from the book. I'm not sure I can't remember because I read the book last year, so I can't remember all of the details. So I can't remember if the questions were taken word for word from the book, but I just know this the general format was faithful huge source material and they even ha- and then they also have number two when she's like when she's like when she first says you know the kids will be ex- executed and then she corrects herself and says excuse again taken straight from the book and and then also the, the, the checkerboard the checkerboard room where the kids have to try to figure out how to cro- how to cross these square tiles Without touch, without making contact with their hands and feet. Again, that was from the book as well. Although in in the show, Kate is able to just go across one time, while in the book, Milligan has to repeat the challenge multiple times in order to see if she can complete it without using her bucket. 
when Constance has a picnic in a maze, that happens in the book. But what doesn't happen in the book is Rainy, Sticky, and Kate all ringing the bell at the same time. In the book, they could just all ring it at different times, but in the show, they had it so, you know, when that other kid, Dewey, when he rings it by himself, but then he doesn't succeed because he didn't ring it with three other contestants. So that was a change that they made. Although, I, I kind of enjoyed it because then it shows, you know, that, Ka- that Kate that Kate is already showing loyalty to Sticky and Rainy because she was waiting for them to ring the bell with her. And so that way you can, al- you can already see the, the, the teamwork, for, the unity forming between them. And then, of course, Rhonda is showing up to look like a kid and, you know, dropping the pencil and pretending, oh, you know, I dropped my pencil, and getting Rainy to, you know, break his pencil in half so that he can give, he can give one half of, of the pencil to her. Of course, that was all in the book as well, and it's just funny because she, it's funny because she really does look like a kid uh, when she first shows up. But then, of course, later on, we find out she's an adult, and she was actually kind of like a like a mole planted planted to test uh, the other kids and see what they'll do if they pass by someone who you know needs a pencil. What are they going to stop to help them, or are they just going to be selfish and just walk on into the school and not do not do anything? Yeah, the, act- the actor who plays Rhonda, Mamiya Boafo, I enjoyed her a lot as well. She was also on the Hulu series Rami. And I like the introduction of Mr. Benedict at the end of the episode. And he doesn't, he doesn't wear a green plaid suit like he does in the book, but I think they do give him kind of like this, this plaid handkerchief. And again, for minor changes like this, I'm okay with, I'm okay with these kind of alterations. You know, just as long as the adaptation sticks to the true spirit of the source material. And I like how to have, you know, the whole, you know, Mr. Benedict, he's, he's not, he's a narcoleptic, or cataplexy, and he, and he ends up just falling asleep whenever he feels strong emotions, typically like when he's, when he's laughing. I just, you know, think, think, think that's hilarious. And then when Milligan shows up, now I want to say that there's a moment, there's a shot between him and Kate, and it does, it make, it's much more significant once you know what happens between them at the end of the show, and I like that. And I also want to say that, say that the way Milligan is depicted here on the show is different from, it's initially different from what he, from how he's depicted in the book, because in the book, I think he's, he's quite sad because, you know, he's this gentle giant who can't remember his past, you know, he's, he's suffered from amnesia. We just know that he was kidnapped, but we don't really know the circumstances, the circumstances around that or whatever, or whatever happened to him in the past. And so he, he's really quite, a, he's really quite a, a somber character in the book. Whereas here, I feel like all of that is played out for comedy. And I think, again, it's kind of like with Mystic Intro playing Rainy, Whereas, like, you know, he kind of, you have to wait for him to settle down into the role and get familiar with things. I think here, we have to wait for the character of Milligan and the way that the show handles him. Again, to just kind of settle down, just wait for things to pan out. And then, over the next few episodes, I think we, I think we return to the, to the somber mood of his character, the way that he was depicted in the book. 
and the show stops focusing so much on the comedy of the amnesiac Milligan. Then we have the second episode of the series, Carrying a Bird, directed by Greg Beeman. His TV directing credits span over Jag, Smallville, Heroes, and Falling Skies. And as for movies, he directed License to Drive, and some decom movies like Frank and Ultimate Christmas Present, and he also directed Mom and Dad Save the World, a movie for which he summary reads, and the mood for total silliness on a planet of idiots, and he couldn't do better than this comedy about a California couple kidnapped by intergalactic despot John Lovitz. He's fallen in love with Terry Gar, and unless she marries him, he'll destroy Earth. Yeah, I don't know, I, I can't ever picture John Lovitz as being an intergalactic despot. <laughs> Seems too inconceivable. And then this episode was also written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi. So, so, now that we, so now that Mr. Me- Mr. Benedict has recruited the four kids, Rainy, Sticky, Kate, and Constance, for his quest, he now tells them, he now tells them about how the emergency is being caused by, the, by all of these subliminal messages that have been spread through the news. And the plan is to ship the kids off to a boarding school called the Live Institute. On the show, the Live and Live Institute stands for Learning Institute for Veritas and Enlightenment. In the book, it stood for the Learning Institute for the Very Enlightened. So, I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure why they had to make the change there, but you know, like, whatever. Again, it's a, it's a, min- it's a minor change. And, and, and they'll keep, and uh, the adult, Mr. Benedict, and his assistants will communicate with kids through Morse code, flashlight Morse code. And there's a quote from Mr. Benedict in this episode that goes, Proof is useless unless it is proof of something that people already want to believe. That definitely applies, I feel like, to the world we're living in today. And then we also have a scene in this episode where where when when Sticky and Kate are practicing Morse code, he he ends up telling his backstory about what hap- about what happened to him, and I like how that played out in this scene through the Morse code. But so I do want to I do want to uh, I do have to criticize the way the show handled this because what ha- basically basically what happens in the book is that Sticky was this genius who went on all of these quiz shows and his pa- and his parents pressured him to, to, do, to do this in order to get all of the money that he would win and it just built up it was, it was just building up so much pressure for Sticky and he ended up running and he ended up not, not running away he, he, he pretended to run away but he, act, but he actually hid in the attic and he re- and he overheard his parents talking about how, you know, things things at home would be easier w- without him, and just really hurt him. So he ended up running away for good. But however, we actually learn at the by the en- at the end of the book that his parents act that his parents actually it's not it's not just things would e- would be easier for them without him. It's that he realized things would actually be easier for Sticky without them putting pressure on him to win all of these quiz shows, and they ended up spending uh, most of, most of the money. That, well, actually, pretty much, I think it was I think it was all of the money because I remember specifically the book said they were in they were in debt 
because they had spent all this money they had gotten, they had gotten from the, the quiz shows searching for him. And so they end, so Sticky and his parents end up, reuni- end up reuniting at the end. And it really is sweet because all of these kids, Rainy, Sticky, Kate, and Constance, they're all orphans. And, you know, they all, they all have these surprisingly, you know, sad backstories. And you really feel, feel for them. And I think that's, that's, you know, obviously generally a thing in, you know, children's literature, you know, orphans. I think it's, I think it's just this thing, like, you know, I, I feel like kids just love, you know, the idea of just being out there, not having parents to hold you down. Even though, obviously, I mean, I don't know why kids like that, because also these orphans have such, you know, tragic childhoods. I mean, just look at Harry Potter or just any sort of orphans like that. Yeah, but... So anyway, so that's the way St- Sticky's arc plays out in the book. But on the show, his parents died, and then he was handed over to his aunt. And so so it was actually his aunt and her, and her husband that pressured him to do the quiz shows. And then on the show, he hides in the library, not the attic. But then what happens at the end of the show is that he just calls up his aunt, and just, uh, just like I guess he he says that he resolved he just resolved things. It was just very vague the way he described it, and so yeah, we don't get any of it, any of that you know resolution with him, you know reuniting with his reuniting with, with his family, and I was really quite 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 upset by that because I enjoyed that in the book, but then we don't get any of that resolution here. It's just kind of like, oh, you know, we just, the show basically just goes, eh, you know, Sticky's family, Sticky's family doesn't give a crap about him, you know, whatever. And I just wish that it could have been, you know, it could have been faithful to the source material. And I think it would have been much more fulfilling. So that is one of the, one of the few changes that I've taken issue with. And then after the kids get dropped off at the Live Institute, they meet their guides, Jackson and Jolson. And these were, this was a, a creepy pair in the show. And even in the book, it's pointed out through the narration that the kids can't tell whether these two are siblings or boyfriend and girlfriend. And I, I know there are people like that in real life, but still, it's just, it's, it's, it's creepy. And just even, and even the show, the show acknowledges that. Even I think there's a moment later on when Jackson and Jolson, I think they say they say a certain phrase at the same time, and one of them is like, "We should do th- we should do that more often." <laughs> and they just they look the same. They have the same kind of face and the same hair and the same clothing. Just <laughs> and I enjoy the light bulb problem in this very much. You know, where it's like, "Oh, if you have these three switches, and you have to figure out which one of them is connected to the light bulb, but you can only go up to check the." But you can only go to check the light bulb once. Which of these switches? How can you figure out which one of these switches is connected to the light bulb? And I love that. It's like, I think I think the, I think the answer was, turn. You have to click the first switch, and then, and then, t- and then wait a bit, turn it back off, and then wait a bit longer, and then click the second switch, and then you go check the light bulb. So, so then if it's off and then you touch it and it's warm, then you know it's the first switch. If it's on, you know it's the second switch. But if it's off and it's cold, then you know that neither of the first two switches are the one, and you know it's the third switch. 
I really love that. I mean, yeah, just simple little, simple little puzzles like that. I love the, the logic behind them. It's the kind of thing where it's like, it seems complicated at first, but then once you solve it, it's like, oh, that was so easy. Why didn't I think of that earlier? So yeah, I really enjoy that. And then, of course, the, sec- the second episode wraps up with the debut of Mr. Curtin, Mr. Benedict's twin brother, who is also played by Tony Hale. And I just, I, so now I can get into this because I really love the depiction of Mr. Curtin in the show because he's, he's just such a, he contrasts so much with Mr. Benedict. They both have different clothing, just different hairstyles, just different personalities completely. And so, whereas you have kind of like, a, whereas you have the, the raggedy personality, kind of like a messy, chaotic personality of Mr. Benedict, Mr. Curtin is the complete opposite of him. He's just all polished and self-possessed and smooth, just charming, suave. And in the book, I think he's he's depicted in a much more one-dimensional as a as a much more of a one-dimensionally nefarious person. Whereas here, he's much more charismatic. He's much more likable. So even so many, there's a lot of moments throughout the show where you can tell that Rainy and Sticky specifically, even they're kind of falling into, they're kind of you know falling under his umbrella of charm. Even though they know they're supposed to fight against him and stop him because he's he's the mastermind behind the emergency. But he has this kind of fatherly air about him that makes you it, it makes you want to trust him. Especially since, I mean, for most of the show, he's just so quiet and calm. And, and, and I like how he maintains that throughout the show. And it's not like, he, it's not like he's, he, he's being, he's being hammered. Tony Hale doesn't ham up, doesn't ham up the performance. He doesn't start, you know, twirling his mustache and, and, cack, and cackling and going, Oh, mwahahaha, here's my evil plan. And I would say just... Performance-wise, I would say that the, the, the quality that is shared between Mr. Curtin and Mr. Benedict is that they both have that same, that same, that same, I keep saying it's subdued, because I think subdued is definitely the word that's suitable for both of them. There's, not, there's nothing exaggerated about them. You know, it's not like that kind of, kind of energy that just fills the whole space around them. It's much more, it's much more nuanced than that. And, you know, we have to give credit to Tony Hale for being able to tap into that for both performances. I mean, it's already tough enough to play to do a role, but just to to, get, to really dig into that and be able to delve into the different personalities so well. You know, for the longest time, I've seen Tony Hale pop pop up and stuff, but I feel like only now am I really starting to truly appreciate his talent. And so I definitely, I definitely want to see more of his work. And another difference between the show and the book is that, in the sh- is that in the book, Mr. Curtin is in a wheelchair, and I'm very glad that they changed this for the show, just because you know there is a trope of a disabled villain. You just you, I, you you would be surprised if you if you do the research into this, you'd be surprised, you know how often this is used in the media the disabled villain. Whether it's stuff like, you know, even just like uh, Samuel, L. Jackson, Samuel L. Jackson's character in, Un- in Unbreakable and then Glass, you know, he ends up being in a wheelchair and he ends up being a villain. And then you have, 
even like a Bill Nye's character in uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu, he's in a wheelchair, and then he ends up being the villain because he wants to use Mewtwo. He 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 wants to transfer his mind into Mewtwo's body. And then you have uh, you have uh, the military villain from Avatar. He's uh, he's uh, he's blind and don't breathe, and then he ends up being the antagonist because he he, he because he turns the tables on the home invaders, and he's basically like Daredevil, and just you know sensing everything all around him, and just even just even the way that that don't breathe progresses. Just feels very sleazy. Just, just the way that it uses that character, and just yeah. And, and I'm not, and I'm very hesitant about even don't breathe too. Because now, it's, now it seems like oh, you're the villain in the first movie, but now it seems like don't breathe too. It's gonna flip things around and make him and frame him, frame, frame him as a hero, and he apparently can just sense everything again, sense everything around him, and just tell where he can shoot people just from the. Uh, just from the reports that go through a puddle. I don't know, I just think this kind of representation for people with blindness is ridiculous and exploitative. So all in all, I'm glad that Mr. Curtin isn't in a wheelchair on the TV show. And now we have the third episode, The Pants on the Wagon, which is directed by Glenn Winter. He's done a lot of work for the Arrowverse shows, like Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, and Legends of Tomorrow. He was also a director for Smallville, and the third episode is also written by Shouty Laura, who's writing credits, who has write, writing credits for Vita and Blindspot. Now, this is the episode where, you know, obviously so the four kids, they figure out that Mr. Curtin and Mr. Benedict are twin brothers, and they end up transmitting this, this, this intel to Mr. Benedict, and this, and so this is this is the first time where we find out that the that the, the school has a ranking of all of the students, and the lowest and the students with the lowest ranking get kicked out and brain swept, and that's the term they use for wiping a memory. And so this d- didn't happen in the book. Th- there was no there was no risk of getting kicked off of the island and brainwashed. But I think we added this detail for the show in order to amp up the tension. In this episode, we also meet SQ for the first time. He, he is Mr. Curtin's adoptive son who loves drawing. And we also and oh, we also have the, the scene where Rainy and Mr. Curtin are eating le- lettuce together. And that's kind of a funny scene, just watching Mr. Curtin crunch up his lettuce. And Oh, and then, and then Milligan goes into Benedict, Mr. Benedict's house, and the desk is there. It, it reminds me of Resolute's desk in National Treasure Book of Secrets. Can't wait for the Disney Plus series adaptation, by the way. And, oh, and, and then we also, ha- we also have a, a quote where, where Mr. Benedict says, I ask so much from you, from all of you. And then Milligan replies, yes, but you give so much more. Again, now, I really do love how the show makes it clear that Milligan is such a loyal friend to Mr. Benedict. You know, like, if, if he's on your side, he'll do anything for you. And I think the show definitely delivers that well and stays faithful to that, to that part of his character from his, portrayal, from his portrayal in the book. 
and I think a, a notable scene in this episode is when Mr. Benedict is talking with his head scientist, Dr. Garrison, and she's and because she's working on a project and she's working on the emergency on this on this project, and she's kind of pushing and she's kind of you know pushing back because he he's kind of pushing putting pressure on her, and she's pushing back, and at one point she even says, "I'm not sure if you're ever listening to me," and he just he he makes such an effort to reassure her that he is listening to her. But then, the way the way that he kind of, the way he orders her to do what he wants, and he gets her to buckle under his pressure. Again, it it play, it plays well into this character because again, on the outside, he seems so calm and so reassuring, but in the scene, you can tell that he is doing as much as he, as he can to assert to, to assert the power dynamic over his minion, and again, r- rather than hamming things up. And make his nefariousness, make, you know, makes makes the nefariousness of his behavior obvious. He's doing it in a much more insidious manner, and he just he he he's he's giving and he has, and in the scene he he gives Doctor Doctor Garrison a chance to a chance to adjust to answer, and you know comply with him, and we get a few scenes like this throughout the show, specifically between him and Garrison. Well, you know, he tells her to do something, she she tries to object against it, and then he gives her a chance to change her mind, and then she does end up having to change her mind, and just, you know, follow his orders. And then, in this episode, we get an- another riddle, the one about the men who were shot down in the military, and they had to cut off their arms for food, and I like, and I like when Rainy is like, when Rainy apologizes for it, for the answer being so macabre. Mag- and then at the end of the episode, Miss Paramount end, ends up getting skeptical about where Rainy really is because she hasn't been able to contact him because she she still believes that he w- really was sent off to the Boatwright Academy, and so she she ends up scheduling a meeting with the headmaster of the school, and so that's how the third episode wraps up. And then we go to the fourth episode, A Whisper, Not a Shout, which is directed by Wendy Stantler. Who has directed multiple episodes of all, so many shows? Wendy Stansler, she's directed multiple episodes of The Middle, Desperate Housewives, Parks and Recreation, Grey's Anatomy, Ugly Betty, The Vampire Diaries, and Pretty Little Liars. And the episode was written by James Rogers III, who was a writer for The She, and he also wrote and directed the short film Felix. So in this episode, We've got the kids concocting a scheme to read part of Mr. Curtin's journal. Uh, we've got uh, Sticky getting caught using Morse code to communicate with Kate during class, and he ends up being sent to the waiting to the waiting room, which is this this small yellow room basically with all of these lines painted at oblique angles all over the walls, and I, I get that it's supposed to be an optical illusion, and I actually did find myself getting anxious just, just looking at at the room when Sticky was in there. But, however, in the, in the book, it's actually described as being... Because we're not, we're not in the room in the book, but we just know about the room through uh, what Sticky tells us about it. And Sticky des- describes, it in, des- describes the waiting room in the book as being Mount Odorous and swampy, dark, and it has, I guess, creature, I think creatures crawling and creeping everywhere. 
So it's definitely, definitely a different depiction of it on the show than it was in the book. And I guess I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I'm okay with this optical illusion look of it. But I do wonder if there was a way to be more faithful to how it was in the book. You know, maybe we, we don't even need, you know, a, a, a definite a definite portrayal of what a waiting room looks like. We could have, we could have had maybe a look, maybe a peek into what a Sticky is thinking, you know, a lens into Sticky's mind as he's stuck in the room and maybe give us more of a, I don't know, more of a hallucinogenic look at his anxiety as he's spi- spiraling into his nervousness and anticipation. I think that would have been interesting, interesting to watch. You know, maybe something along the lines of the tunnel ride in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Granted, it doesn't have to be that intense, but, you know, something creative like that. And this, this is also the episode where we get to see, uh, we, get, we start to see the dynamic build between number two and Rhonda. Because number two finds out that Rhonda has, pain, has been going to town and putting up messages, you know, in order to inspire people to... Uh, to fight back against the emergency, and this is, and you know it shows how the philosophies clash because you have Rhonda taking a rebellious approach to the situation, whereas number two is being much more straight laced about things, and I think that, I think the two of them have a good chemistry here and also throughout the rest of the show as well. And then and then I like I like how. Uh, Constance ended up decoding Mr. Curtin's journal using the, I think it was a rotational Caesar cipher. And this, this is where we find out that Mr. Benedict, Milligan, number two, Rhonda, they're all, they're all on a list of targets whom Mr. Curtin intends to mind sweep. And this is where we start to get the clock ticking because, you know, we, we also found out early on that there were other adults on the, on on the, on the grounds, who have been mind-swept as well, and Mr. Benedict and his assistants could end up just like them. We also have Constance, who is beginning to hear voices uh, that, that may that may be connected to the emergency, and she alone is she she alone is hearing them. No one else is hearing them but her. And then, we, and then as for Kate, she almost gets sent home because. And in the rankings, she ends up falling below, below, below the line, and she's about to be sent, shipped off of the island. But then she ends up being saved because she gets kind of like this a probationary scholarship to join the tetherball team after playing a game with Martina Crow, who has been bullying her, but now ends up realizing her talent, her potential talent as a tetherball player. And this is, this is kind of a weird thing, this whole tetherball plot, uh, just a plot, but I think it ends up working out at the end, and I end up liking the, the relationship that forms between Kate and Martina. Yeah, Martina def- definitely gives off Blair Waldorf vibes. And now we have the fifth episode, The Art of Conveyance and Round Trippery. This is the episode that's directed by Karen Kusama. Again, she's the director of Eon Flux and Invitation, both of which were co-written by her husband Phil Hay and Madman Freddy. She was also the director of Jennifer's Body and the... Nicole Kidman, Cop Thriller, Destroyer. And the writer for this episode is Taylor Mallory, who was a writer for Freeform's Shadowhunters. So in this episode, you have Rainy and Sticky, because at the end of the last episode, 
they ended up being enlisted as messengers. And we and we haven't really uh, we haven't really known what messengers do in this school up to this point. But in this episode, we end up we end up, we end up uh, finding out that messengers are responsible for sending out subliminal messages through a machine called Whisperer. And we end up finding out that this is the source of the emergency. As for uh, Kate and Constance, they end up exploring the secret tunnels that run underneath the school. And that's when they end up find, going into this server room and overhearing uh, Mr. Curtin talking with Garrison. And, uh, and he talks about kicking off something big the next day called the farm and the forest. And, and then we also have Miss Miss Paramount, who ends up tracking down all of these clues in order to locate Mr. Benedict and his assistants, and you know, in order to ask them about, about what the hell Rainy, Rainy is. And again, I think one of the major changes for the show is how much of a, how much of a role the adults end up playing, because in the book we focus entirely on the kids, and you know, while while they're on the island. And we never switch back to the viewpoint of the adults. And I like how in the show we keep, we we do keep cutting back to the adults in order to show you know how they're dealing with all, with all of this. Because we have Mr. Benedict, he's dealing with the revelation of his brother, how his brother is behind all, is behind the emergency, and so we see him trying to wrestle with that. We have Milligan, who is you know wrestling with things in his own dour manner. And then we also have Rhonda and number two, all, and we, we get to spend more time with them as well. And even Miss Paramore, again, she she gets to be much more in the spotlight here in the show. And so I really do enjoy how the show how the series explores how the adults are handling these these circumstances. And at the end of the episode, the, the four kids end up concluding that they need to shut down the whisper without being captured. And we, and we and we also have the subliminal messages that Rainy and Sticky sent sent out because we 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 learned that Constance again is able to hear them. She's the only one who's able to hear all of these messages. Next, we have episode six, "Run Silent, Run Deep," directed by Greg Beeman and written by Todd Slavkin and Darren Swimmer. Uh, the two of them were showrunners for Melrose Place, Shadowhunters, and Smallville. I like the. I like the flashbacks we have here to show how Mr. Curtin and Mr. Benedict, they, 30 years ago, they were in an orphanage and, you know, they, they were trying to make, they were in this play, and they were trying to make an impression on prospective guardians so they could get adopted. But then we learned that only Benedict got adopted and he, and he, and he had to leave his brother behind he, and he promised Mr. Curtin that he would come back for him. But he ended up betraying him by, because he never asked his guardians to adopt Mr. Curtin. And so we see, I, like, I like how we get to see Mr. Benedict end up having to struggle with his guilt over that choice. We've also got uh, Milligan coming to save his children and his submarine because uh, Mr. Benedict has sent them to, to the island. And I found this whole submarine sequence to be hilarious. And now don't quote me on this, but I think it was in this episode where Constance suggests using, uh, turning, using spider venom to create a paralytic. Oh, God, I love Constance. She just has so many dark lines like that. And even earlier on, she she says, "Rules and schools are tools for fools. I don't give two meals for rules." <laughs>
and we have Sticky. He's kind of he's he's falling under the layer of the whisper because it kind of it makes it makes him feel calm. It it lets him relieve his 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 anxiety, and even Doctor even Mr. Curtin, he he tells him how proud he is how proud he is of Sticky, and he tells Sticky he'll be spending much more time in Whisperer. And the subliminal messages that Sticky uh, sends out tells people to block. Told, told people to buy blueberries, and so Constance ends up ends up investigating this. So she sneaks on to the barge somehow and gets off the island, and then goes all the way to the shop to get a blueberry, and then sneaks back onto the island. And we don't see every detail of how she pulls this off, but I'm okay with that just because these kids are plucky enough that you know we don't. I don't need to see every step that they take to complete their schemes. You know, I'm okay with I'm I'm okay with just hand waving away some of the details and just assuming that they're smart enough to ex- execute these plans. And we learn what Mr. Curtin meant by the forest and the farm, because we find out that because SQ ends up uh, leading uh, leading Rainy to the forest, which has all of these fake trees with all of these antenna towers that are. Uh, built up as fake trees, and then we also have the farm because Kate ends up befriending Martina and is able to copy her key card, so that she's able to so it gives her executive access to the farm, which ends up being a server room, and 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 I like and I like how Martina and Kate are getting uh, getting closer here, but then you also feel guilty too because you know you know that Kate is tricking her, and even Kate herself you can see how she's feeling guilty over her deception, especially when Martina gives her that tether ball charm. And oh, and by the way, I think Mart- Martina she has the nickname of Empress Supreme Magistral of the Flaming Backhand, which is definitely quite fitting for her. And then at the end of the episode. Uh, the, the four children end up fighting amongst each, amongst each other because Sticky he because Sticky he wants he he likes the whisperer he thinks it's calming for people and and that it could have a good purpose in the world, but the other kids uh, obviously are fighting against it, against that, and this ends up pushing Kate to try to break back into the farm the, the server room herself, and then we have the penultimate episode episode seven. Uh, the Dance of the Celestial Orb, directed by Shannon Coley, who has directed episodes for Supergirl, Riverdale, Nancy Drew, Netflix's You, and The Magicians. And this was written by Todd Slapkin and Darren Swimmer. I really appreciate the continuous sense of urgency in this episode, because you're taking all of these, all of these plot threads. And now the show is really just doing. It, it does a great job of wrapping them all together in this penultimate episode. And we've got stuff like, you know, I, I love when 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 Kate when she falls off a cliff, and then Milligan saves her. And and I love and I love the, the Peregrine Falcon bit when the fal- when the Falcon is is flying over the island, and Constance says that she actually faced one before, and she says it did not win. And then she also says, "So we dance again." Uh, <laughs> again, she she has so many quotable lines in this show, and and I think and oh, and, and, and she also says, "Guilt is for the weak." <laughs> and we also have, uh, this is, so this is this is the first episode in the show 
where Curzon raises his voice because up to this point he's been so phlegmatic, but now he's realizing that an enemy is trying to derail his plans. And I like the, I like the, I like the moment where he yeah when he asks SQ to reconsider his answer after the sun asks about the antennas and the forest. Uh, SQ doesn't buckle, unlike Garrison. He's not he's not going back on his answer. And it shows the, the contrast between the relation between the, the two relationships, the relationship between SQ and uh, Mr. Curtin, and the relationship between uh, Garrison and Mr. Curtin. And even I, I forgot to mention in an earlier episode, you know, there was a, a different scene between SQ and Mr. Curtin, where SQ, you know, he wants he wants to befriend Rainy. And Mr. Curzon is trying to discourage him from that and telling him that, you know, people is trying to tell him that people will always be trying to take advantage of him. And I think you can t- you can tell that Mr. Curzon, I think in Mr. Curzon's mind, he he's doing it out of what he believes is love for SQ. Because I think he truly believes that you need to isolate yourself from others, that you can't. You can't allow yourself to be weak, or like you know what he's what he sees as weak as weakness is being dependent on others, being vulnerable with others, and so that's why he, he that's why he he iso- he does he he's doing so he's putting so much effort into isolating SQ from other people into keeping into keeping him alone, and so that's I I think definitely you 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 definitely get get some insight into dysfunctional relationship between Mr. Curzon and SQ in these types of scenes. And we've got, you know, all of the security is looking for Martina because they believe that she broke into the server into the server room because Kate copied her key card. And then of course Martina ends up finding uh, Kate's telephone charm at the cliff and that's when she that's when she realizes that Kate is actually the one responsible for all of this. And and then, uh, and then also Miss pa- Miss Paramal, she ends up going back to Mr. Benedict because because her mom was one, her mom was one of the people who was mind controlled into buying the, the blue berets. And Miss Paramal ends up giving Mr. Benedict a letter to send to Rainy, which the Falcon the Falcon ends up taking that letter, but then as cute ends up finding it. And Rainy convinces him not to tell this, not to tell Mr. Curtin. And then Jackson, Jackson and Jolson, they've been on Mr. Benedict's trail because they were actually the ones who, who, uh, witnessed the, who witnessed the flashlight Morse code taking place. And so, so that, so they ended up finding Mr. Benedict's location, the the cabin that he and his assistants built across the lake, so they could spy on the island. But luckily. Uh, Mr. Benedict and his assistants, number two and Rhonda, they escape in a hot air balloon, a la Brendan Fraser and company in The Mummy Returns. A favorite moment of mine is when Mr. Curtin is interrogating Rainey, and he's like, you know, he knows when people lie, and he's like, oh, the syncopated breathing, the the subtle sheen of perspiration on the forehead, the darting of the eyes, the the ever-so-slight widening of the pupils. And when all the kids agreed to stay on the island, it reminds me a lot of Guardians of the Galaxy. Constance reluctantly joining in at the end especially reminds me of Rocket. And Milligan needing help to get down from the air duct is a good moment too. And now we're up to the eighth and final episode, Big Day Today, directed by Mark Tondurai, 
who directed the much maligned Jennifer Lawrence horror movie House at the End of the Street, and he was also a director for shows like The Five, Gossam, Lucifer, Black Lightning, Doctor Who, and Lock and Key, and this was written by Phil Hay and Matthew and Freddy. Now, this doesn't happen on the show, but in the book, the kids use a plant to poison the cafeteria food, so that Rainy and Sticky would be the only messengers left to be sent to the Whisperer, and therefore they would be able to disable the machine. Constance saying that he, she wants to pour acid on Mr. Curtin's feet to hobble him is just top-notch. And I re- in general, I really appreciate the interactions between Kate and Constance in this final episode. And we got to, we've got to the crash landing of Mr. Benedict's hot air balloon, which is pretty funny. I will say though, the CGI for Kate and Constance climbing up the tower is pretty terrible. It's just like you can you can clearly tell it's green screen behind them, which is strange because I feel like the CGI has been pretty good for most of the show. So I don't know why it's why it's so uneven here. And when Milligan calls Kate Katie Cat, and that that's when he ends up remembering that she's his daughter. It happens just like that in the book as well, and it was a fantastic moment here in the, in the show. And then you have Rainy trying to put Mr. Curtin to sleep with, with jokes, and he does end up laughing really hard at the, the one where it's the, the baby goes going into a bar, but the kids. And I'm not sure that was the best joke to go out with, just because I feel like if you're gonna have Mr. Curtin laugh at some, if you're gonna have Mr. Curtin just cackle at something, you need, you need something that's hilarious, and I'm not sure, you know, it's like, the goat joke, you know, you can, you can chuckle at it, but I'm not sure it's really that, you know, hilarious. But, anyways, it, it doesn't matter, actually, because Mr. Curtin, he, he doesn't have the same type of, uh, narcolepsy as Mr. Benedict, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't fall asleep when he laughs. As it turns out, we find out that he, that he hates me, that he hates feeling vulnerable, and people seeing him for who, who he is, for who he is at his core, and that's when he ends up falling asleep. So in the book, it's actually it's just ang- it's just anger because here on the show, they have it that so that it's when he's feel it's when he feels vulnerable, that's when he falls asleep. But in the book, it's just when he feels angry. And 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 then also in the book. Uh, Mr. Curtin actually ends up tricking the kids into putting him in the chair, and he starts to, uh, and he starts to mind sweep them. But Constance was too stubborn to surrender, and the kids and adults end up leaving Mr. Benedict and the flag tower on his order. So it, it it plays out a little differently in the books than it does here in the show. And we get to see the, the conversation between Mr. Curtin and Mr. Benedict. Which is, which is nice to see too, because this is the first time in years that they've been able to talk to each other. And, and we, and we have, and we have, you know, we have the two of them talking about, you know, the whole Tommy Jacobs story, about how he was a terrible dancer, and Mr. Benedict was trying to teach him how to dance better. But then he, and, and even, even though it boosted his confidence, his performance just ended up being terrible anyways. And the story ends up making Mr. Benedict laugh and then fall asleep, at which point Mr. Curtin is able to escape. And another change is that, uh, is that Mr. Benedict actually impersonates Mr. Curtin and calls the kids and his assistants, de- and, and his assistants decoys in order to drive away his, mi- his minions, the recruiters. 
And then so now we've got, you know, we've got everything wrapping up here with a, you know, pretty happy ending. We've got Rainy asking to live with Miss Pyramold. And we, ha we have, uh, you know, we have some more time between Kate and Milligan. And, you know, they're able to finally reunite. And I like the, mo I like the moment when Kate and the Peregrine Falcon are having a steering contest. And number two and Rhonda are going to go to an air show. And I like I like the, I like the moment they had earlier when they were standing guard at the elevator. That was that was pretty hilarious. And 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 again, I would say I think Sticky definitely he has much, a much better of an arc in the books. I wish that the show had been able to stay true to that. And in the book, uh, we have we in the book we also have Mr. Benedict. Uh, talking about how he uh, talking about how he actually adopted number two and Rhonda, so it's more appropriate to say that they adopted him, and that con and and he goes on to say that Constance is adopting the family. Uh, we don't have that in the show, so I so I do kind of wish that we had something like that again, just just to go with this whole you know found family trope, which I'm a sucker for, you know, whether it's Guardians of the Galaxy or Six 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 of Crows or any of that, you know, I, I just love that stuff. And there's not, so, in the book, uh, there's not, in the book, it's revealed that Constance is actually two years old, but we don't have that in the show, which I kind of wonder why they did that. I mean, maybe it doesn't have to be two years old, but I feel like it would be, it would be fitting to, you know, maybe just have her, like, be five, just because even, even when we, when you just look at her, Compared to the other children, she definitely looks significantly younger than the other kids, and so I feel like it would have been like it would have been nice to have that in there too. You know, just just have her be at, at least five years old in the show, and it's just funny because you know, it, it, once you find out in the books that, you, that she's two, it explains the whole you know it explains why she's so grumpy all the time. But something something that is in the show is that she and she ends up. Are manifesting her psychic powers, and that's because that's how she ends up destroying the Whisperer. And this just doesn't happen in the this does not happen in the first book, but it does happen. But this does happen later on in the series. Is that she does end up having psychic psychic abilities, and it's a strange thing. I mean, I'll see. I'll have this out because I'm planning to read the rest of other books in the series. So I'll have to see how it unfolds there, but it it does sound pretty strange. But I feel like here on the show, it was set up well enough. What was you know her being able to hear these subliminal messages earlier on in the show, and, and then the final scene is with Mr. Curtin, SQ, and Doctor Doctor Garrison on their ship, and it's and it's sailing off, and I'm pretty sure it's the same ship that's on the cover of the second book in the series, so this is definitely, it, it, it's setting things up for a second season, if there will be one, which, I mean, I think there has to be one, just because from what I've, from what I've seen, uh, this show has gotten an overall positive reception, and I, de I, and I definitely would love to see more of this laid out, just because there were definitely some, some threads that weren't resolved completely, so I, it definitely leaves open the possibility for another season. So, that's my review for The Mysterious Benedict Society on Disney+. Plus. Again, I highly recommend you watch this show. Again, I, it, it's just, it, really, it really is fun. 
again, I enjoy the, the Wes Anderson visuals and just the, the idiosyncratic tone and just, just everything about it. And I also recommend diving into the books by Trenton Lee Stewart as well. Now we're moving on to Good Word, the segment in which I can recommend anything I want. Books, movies, TV shows, music, anything, just anything. And today I'll be taking a bit of a different route by putting in a good word for Simone Biles and mental health awareness. Just, be, just because, you know, I think, obviously, you know, Simone Biles, she is a spectacular athlete. And her, her talent can't be de- denied. And... I think we 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 just have to be we have to we have to be much more empathetic for for her and for people who are in her position who are you know putting the putting their lives at risk when they're doing these performances and we and because we have to acknowledge that mental health is just as important as physical health and there's just all of these people who are just like oh you know someone by or she let down her team you know she's being weak. But it's like, no, you know, she needs to take care of herself and also acknowledge that, you know, what, what if she doesn't give her best performance, then she might be letting down her team anyways. But obviously the most important thing is that she needs to, she needs to, t- to take care of her mental health. And just all of, you know, we, ha- we have to acknowledge all of the strain she ha- she's had to face, especially with what was the, uh, the sexual abuse she faced from uh, Larry Nasser and... I think, in, in, in general, there is this environment of dismissing mental health. Like, like you know, it, like it's nothing to, that we have to pay attention to just because it, it you know, doesn't have a, a physical form, apparently, and it's something we think we can ignore. But it's like, no, we need to pay attention to our mental health. We have to take care, we have to attend to our minds as much as our bodies. Let's not forget the fact that racism and misogyny are are factors in this as well, and ah, just, you know, the whole thing aggravates me. So yeah, Simone Biles and mental health awareness, that's my good word for today. As for the socials, the Twitter handle for this podcast uh, is at two cents, at two underscore cents critic, and the Twitter handle for my personal account is at author underscore ant18, and if you want to email me, you can do, you can do that at email to sensecritic at yahoo.com and you can follow my blog at twosensecritic.com and make sure you rate rate and review on iTunes and wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps with the algorithm and you can also help spread the word by telling your friends and family about this podcast too. You have no idea how much word of mouth can help with the promotion. And until next time, stay healthy and stay strong.